Welcome to Talking Acoustics. Every two years, the company I work for, Marshall Day Acoustics, holds a company conference and brings everyone from the graduates to the directors together for three days of technical talks, shared learning and socialising. And last month we were in Eildon in Victoria and I took the opportunity to have a chat with Joe Valentine from our Auckland office. Uh, Joe started out studying architecture with Sir Harold Marshall as head of faculty and quickly developed a passion for room acoustics. And she's followed that passion for over 30 years, working on the acoustic design of projects including the ASB Waterfront Theatre in Auckland, the Hong Kong Cultural Centre and the Philharmonie de Paris. Um, She's softly spoken and unassuming, but her sharp mind, focus and determination has seen her uh, complex performing arts projects succeed time and again. Uh, I was hoping to get a few insights when we caught up. Uh, So, Joe Valentine, thanks for joining me. Um, How do you explain to people at barbecue what it is you do for a living? How do I explain at a barbecue? I say that I work in building acoustics, not electroacoustics, so not loudspeakers and sound systems, but I work with the architects to shape the room so that the natural acoustics of the room are favourable. Mm-hmm. So how did you come to get involved with acoustics? Was that something you set out to do at uh, primary school? That you said, I want to be an acoustic engineer when I grow up? Most definitely not. <laughs> uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I grew up, and it was suggested to me that um, being an architect or something similar would be a good combination of the maths and art that were my best subjects, really. So I didn't really know what being an architect would be like at all, but thought, oh, okay, that sounds quite good. I'll give that a go. (laughs) So in architecture school, I got very inspired by Harold Marshall. And this, so you're at University of Auckland? Auckland Auckland University. University, yes. And this is when Harold Marshall was the head of architecture faculty or involved Uh, with the architecture faculty. He was involved. He did lectures there, yes. I think he was mostly working in um, the acoustics research laboratory by that time, although I can't really remember. But he was certainly doing lectures. Mm -hmm. And that time at the architecture school was really interesting in terms of learning how to design and the studio process and things. But most of the supplementary courses to me seemed... um, not especially useful and then when I went to Harold academic you mean like more sort of just a little bit too esoteric yeah Yeah. so Harold's lectures were just completely inspiring because he was so passionate about what he does he's a very good orator he knows how to capture your attention he times things well he had interesting um, anecdotes and things from his life and just made for a really good lecture Mm. and he also was quite hands-on like we might have had a lecture but then we might the next week have to make out of cardboard a a shape that we think would be suitable for a concert hall or something so Mm. he was he was also hands-on and I realized that I knew nothing about how sound behaved 
in rooms and that I realised that when the acoustics are good, you just sort of expect that they're good. You don't mm-hmm. really, you don't even really think about it. But as soon as they're not good, you notice it and think, oh my gosh. So I realised that I knew nothing about it and thought, oh, okay, I'll, I'll learn a bit more about this. This is of some interest to me, just because I felt like I didn't really know what was going on. Yeah. So he sparked the interest. Yeah. So you've, you've gone to uni and you've done an architecture degree. Mm-hmm. Did you then go on to practice as an architect? No. Um, when I went to architecture school, we it's quite a long degree. Like there's an intermediate year and then another four years. So it's five years. Mm. It isn't any more, I think, than after three years you get your bachelor's and the five years is actually a master's now, which right. reflects the amount of time that yep. the whole degree takes, but not back then. And so uh, those of us who chose to go to architecture school at that time knew that we were coming out, we'd be coming out in a dip in the building industry that was already forecast and that we'd probably struggle to get jobs for a little while. Well, after five years of university and working at the hospital telephone exchange in the orchard to save enough money to do it, at the end of it, I was like, okay, there's no jobs for architects, so... What am I going to do now? And at about the time that I was thinking that, that's when I got offered the job at Marshall Day. And, and I thought, okay, Marshall Day, something I'm quite interested in, or waitressing to pay back the $500 that I was in debt, which wasn't too bad after five years at university because I'd paid my way most of the way through to having holiday jobs and weekend jobs and things. I thought, I think I'll do this. Seems like a sensible choice. Hmm. Do you, having having... Um, done architecture, which is you get to get to put your fingerprint on all the parts of the building. Yes. And now having focused on just the acoustic component of it, do you ever yes. feel uh, that you've missed out, or mm, not mm. really? I think that that first year I was working on Orange County Performing Arts Centre. Hong Kong, Shim Shatsui, um, some really interesting projects. Mm. And my friends who'd come out of architecture school because there were no jobs were, even the ones who had jobs were doing things like colour schemes for hospitals. And mm. I mean, you because you have to start at the bottom and work your way up and prove yourself. And I thought, you know, I'm actually quite enjoying this. So... It occurred to me a couple of times, well, you know, do I want to go back and do, you know, architecture fully? But I think that, I think that I was just enjoying what I was doing and I felt a little bit disillusioned about the architecture thing because you go to architecture school, you learn that the big office towers that have air conditioning and all the rest of it are really unhealthy places to be. And you realise that all the architects before you have learnt all these things in their courses as well, but everyone is still building the same tall glass towers that are air-conditioned. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. Why are people not walking the talk? Why, mm. what's, what's going on here? And I realised that it was largely because most of the buildings were developer-driven. Mm. And, you know, only the most elite of the architects get to do really what they want. Yeah. Yeah. So you joined um, 
you joined, it came out of uni and joined Marshall Day, or it was, it was Marshall Day at that point, it was yes. Harold and, and Chris. Harold and Tiff, yeah. uh, Larry, yeah. doing sound system work, and the day that I joined, Stuart Camp joined as well. So, so you're joining a company of five or six people. Yep. Um, uh, that's a very different company to what it is now. Um, yes. There are sort of 100 plus employees now. Yeah. Um, what, what's that? Can you talk about some of the changes um, that have occurred over that? period and and the technology's changed obviously um the business side i guess must have changed the the culture maybe has changed um i'm thinking yeah i can remember for you know various different conferences and you know getting into groups and discussing these kind of issues from when we were quite small Mm. to until we were quite moderately sized and almost everyone said, let's not let it get too big. Yeah. Everyone had this feeling that we needed to keep that sort of family business feeling going because mm. that's what we liked about it. But the funny thing is, it's now way outgrown what we thought would would be starting to feel too amorphous and not not keep that sort of sense of what we liked about it. It's gone way beyond there now, and it still feels okay. So, mm. And was there thirty plus years ago? Was there were there many women working in acoustics? Uh, not many. Was that a was that a roadblock at all? Did you feel or no? Didn't didn't sort of register as an issue. No. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Do you think is there? I mean, I think there's still sort of a gender imbalance in. In acoustics, I mean in engineering generally. Yeah. Um, do you have any thoughts about what we should be doing to attract uh, more women and more sort of a, a diverse field of people to the industry? Mm. I think that the gender imbalance thing is slowly kind of correcting itself by itself, really. Mm-hmm. I don't think. I don't know any women anymore that I know who feel limited in that way. Yeah. So it isn't necessarily that the field's not open to them. It may be that there aren't that many. I mean, I don't know what, what the situation mm. is. Maybe there's not that many people who are that interested. I, mm. don't, I don't know. I just feel like the barriers that used to be there are, are not there to the same degree. Yeah. And so if the numbers aren't changing, then it's something else is going on. Mm. You, you've had an opportunity, um, as you say, to work with Harold uh, Marshall over a long period in, in both your careers, a substantial period. Um, what's it like being? What's it been like working with Harold? Oh, hi, working with Harold's great. He's um, his enthusiasm is just infectious, and he never tells you what to do. He poses a question or says, have you thought about this? Or he gets his message across without 
without being prescriptive and telling you how to deal with it and what he would do. He just gets the message across that maybe you're not quite on the right track there, which I think is really good. And if you are on the right track, then he's, you know, full of praise. Yes, I think that could really work here. I think that you're doing the right thing. That's that's brilliant, kind of. Mm. Um, so he doesn't, he's not trying to make people be like him. Yeah. Yeah. He's quite supportive. Mm. Which is good because it's a pretty diverse group of people mm. working in Marshall Day. Yeah. Um, we were talking last night and you were... Um, we were talking about um, working on buildings, and particularly performing arts buildings, um, which you've been heavily involved with for a long period. Yes. Um, and you were saying uh, something I thought was interesting, that you like to get involved with all the aspects in a building like that, the mechanical services and the sound insulation, as well as the room acoustics, which is the sort of, you know, the really prestigious bit that everyone wants to do yes um can you talk about a bit about why why you think getting involved with all the aspects is important well i think that was probably born in the beginning with there not being many of us Mm -hmm. and so we all had to be generalists in a way and so i've stuck with that really but i feel like if I have done everything for the project, the resource consent, the me- noise control of mechanical services, the sound insulation, and the room acoustics, then I really know what's going on in that building. Um, I I know which spaces have to be quiet and which ones are fine if they're not quiet. I know where the duct runs are going. I know where the where there could be potential issues, I can talk to the mechanical services engineers and say, look, you know, could we run, could we have two runs down there? I need to have the velocity. Um, you know, I think there'd be room to put them there and that that wouldn't be intrusive on the space. And everyone's sort of, I don't know, it's like having a comprehensive view of the whole building. I guess that sort of aids the collaboration, the collaborative nature of design if you can yeah, talk I think to so. all groups all parties um you know without having to sort of go off and refer to someone else to and find an answer i think also last night i was saying to you that i sometimes think about when a project begins and there's those first few meetings about what things are going to be a challenge and what things are going to make or break it from an acoustic perspective and at that stage, I was talking, thinking more probably about the sound insulation and the room acoustics um, and the broad things like using um, less sensitive spaces to shield the more sensitive spaces in terms of external noise sources and so forth. So in the planning, mm. do things that make it more easy. Easier. Um, and it is the same for the mech services like it's the questions are well where can the plant go or can we please have it remote i need mm. you know 15 meters of length of ductwork before we get to that theater yep. you can't just put it on the roof of the theater and you can't put it out outside the door we won't achieve what we need to achieve yep. so if you ask for some of these things right in the beginning and people understand where you're coming from then it does seem that the design doesn't go off on a 
tangent that you know is going to make it difficult. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just about understanding all the things that are important to get a good result in the end for acoustic aspects. Yep. Yep. And at the same time, everyone else is saying, yeah, well, oh, no, I don't want to be 15 metres away. I said, okay, well, well how about if we um, make it this many metres away, but, you know, we have two concrete walls in between mm-hmm. or something, and they'll say, oh, yeah, that's achievable. Or, yep. you know, it's, it's toing and froing. Mm. Everything's up on the table. Um, and it seems to me that those sort of decisions that are made in that circumstance survive all the cost cutting and every, everything that goes on in terms of project, well, reducing cost on the projects because if people bought into it right at the beginning, then they're reluctant to give it up. And if that process, it doesn't happen on every project, that kind of process. Sometimes a project manager runs it in a completely different way and I've many times been in a room where I've said, oh, well, yeah, the acoustics are really expensive. And every time that's ever come up, it's been because we didn't have those initial roundtable meetings where everyone bought in to the idea and why we were doing it. Oh, acoustics, you know, we need all those big ducts and do we really need it? And it's acoustics is the first thing people say, let's chop that. Yeah, she can't see it. Yeah, well, they don't they don't understand that it's important. So yeah. sometimes I, you know, have to sell the acoustics. Yeah. I mean, many people are worried about what it looks like. But if it's a theatre, I said to them, well, you know, in a theatre, they can do a lot with scenery and lighting and things to create the atmosphere that they want, irrespective of what your building looks like. But yep. if you can't hear the performance, then it isn't a performance. Mm. So acoustics is right up there. Yeah. You had a um, you had a you were saying a strategy last night. You were saying that uh, you asked for three things up front. Yeah. <laughs> I I'd usually try and figure out before one of those first meetings for that particular project what are the th- three things that might make or break it. Because you can't go along and ask for ten things, so you won't get them. Mm. So I try to think, okay, what do I really need to get across that we need for this for this particular project? Getting them to metaphorically uh, sign on the dotted line that these are the three things I want and we've got to keep them all the way through. Well, yeah. I mean, the first thing that people want to do structurally, for instance, is to make the thinnest, most economical slabs. Well, that's mm. okay for some sorts of buildings, but it's not okay for others. Mm. So sometimes what I say is, now look, we can't think thin slabs, you know, we can't have ribbed confloor or blah, blah type slabs in mm-hmm. this building in this zone here. Yep. You have to have flat slab and topping or, you know, you have to think grunty concrete mm. slabs. Um, you know, you need filled block work around the plant room. So do you really want them on the seventh floor? Mm. Um, you know, Things like that, yep. just, just sort of, just practical things, really. Yeah. Yep. Um, what have you been most proud of in your career to date? <laughs> well, well, the Paris Hall, but that was both the best project and the worst project ever. <laughs> so <laughs> this is the Philharmonie de Paris, yeah, which uh, was a sort of Marshall Day. Uh, team effort but over 
10 year life of the project? Oh, yeah, quite yeah, a long time. It went into hiatus with the global financial crisis and things. But obviously that was a very proud moment when I first heard the orchestra in that room. Mm. But in terms of projects that I've loved through and through, right from the beginning to the end, probably the Iona College Concert Chamber. That was a lovely project with Stevens Lawson Architects and we were there right at the beginning and they wanted to do asymmetrical forms and we said, yeah, that's fine, that could work. Yep. Um, so we helped we helped them think about the shape of the room and getting the volume about right from the beginning. There was just a lot of interaction between the between us and the architects, Tiff did some of that as well. And when we got to things like I wanted to get some diffusion in the ceiling, I threw around a couple of ideas with them and they had something in there and then that whole project went to ground because the money had to be spent on some buildings in Christchurch after the earthquake mm. instead and so there wasn't any money for this project, which was fine. Um, but when it came alive again, they said, look, well, we don't really like this. I said, no, nah, I don't really like it either. It's a bit knobbly and I don't really like it. So the suggestion was that I go and sit with one of the architects who was working on that. So that's what I did. I went into the Stevens Lawson's office and I sat down and I can't even remember which architect I was sitting down beside then. And we were at the computer together and I said, well, you know, we could do twisted wavy forms, we could do woven things, we could do what what would go with your architectural concept here? We already had some curves and angled walls and things. And he sparked off the idea of these twisted ribbony things and started drawing them up on the computer and I said yeah fantastic but we need a few ledgers we've got to send some sound back to the orchestra and uh, everywhere that it's concave it's got to be less than the radius of this so there's mm. no sound focusing and and we sat there and in half an hour we designed it well he had, he had designed it mm. with me giving some input and that happened on several things on in that building and it was just a really nice synthesis of the um there were two buildings that they built at the same time and in both buildings their architects actually acknowledged that the things that they had to do for acoustic reasons actually in the end improved the buildings mm. like it was just a really nice result mm. of working together and getting something that was better at mm. the end not a compromise yeah. and not a fight to get it in, but, you know, and that one, that concert chamber won the Supreme New Zealand Architecture Award in 2015, I think it was. Mm. And the judges noticed that the acoustics had been just seamlessly incorporated into the building, which is pretty unusual in an architectural award mm. to have them notice that so that was a bit of a highlight that's pretty good yeah and that's an asymmetric room isn't it asymmetric yeah. yeah and it's is that the one that has does that have external windows into the performance space and yes. natural light yeah yep yeah i've seen pictures of that it's, yeah it's very impressive yeah um so that's about when things go very well what about um when things go wrong can you tell me about a failure? Or a... Oh, well, I'll tell you about some interesting, an interesting failure. For the Waterfront Theatre, 
the design team, it was a really good design process, but there was a limited pot of money. People had been um, saving up money and funding to get a, a, a 600 type seat theatre long after the sort of watershed theatre that used to be there, which was a sort of sprung up a found space but it disappeared and so Auckland was had been missing a kind of a mid-sized a drama theatre yeah and uh, Gordon Moller of Moller Architects was really kind of pushing it and driving it along but there was a fixed pot of money so the design went extremely well everything was incorporated all was working quite well there were some significant challenges with the plant rooms being wrapped all the way around the the fly tower so you know impinging on the performance space on three sides mm. is a little bit tricky full of chillers and noisy pieces of equipment um it had a huge concave rear wall so there were some interesting kind of challenges in there but it also was a really cool and intimate space even though it was seating 600 people but the challenge on that project was that for the people to build it for the money that was available they had to make the slabs thinner um, do a whole bunch of things which were all absolutely against the original acoustic intention and the original acoustic intention had taken into account all of the junctions and where things link and how the flanking would work mm. And it all went out of the, out the window and get and getting it um, costed such that it could be built. Yep. And I wasn't going to be the person who said, no, you can't do that, because then mm. there wasn't going to be a theatre. And yeah. I knew all the love and sweat and years that had gone into getting that there. So I, I just said, okay, well, you can do this, but it has to be a minimum of this. Um, as the topping and made a whole pile of comp compromises and did a whole bunch of calcs and thought, oh, I think we can get away with this and blah, blah, which was all very well and good. But then the seismic engineering came in right at the very end and the block work, the field block work walls around the fly tower, they're up at level six and seven and five. Um, they cut off the top line of blocks because the seismic people said it couldn't touch the slab. Can you believe this? So I've got all this noisy equipment and these gaps this like gap. this. Wow, the Hawkins Construction people and I were sitting there thinking, holy cow, how are we going to deal with this? I did all these calcs to figure out what I could do on the outside or in one line to get that to work because the scaffolding had already been taken down from the inside of the fly tower, which yeah. had cost a fortune yeah. to be there, and it wasn't going to be re-erected. So I couldn't get to the backside of the walls, way up seven stories high mm. and no scaffolding. So that was like a big challenge, and in the end... Hawkins managed to find some, you know, 1,900 grams per square metre black sand from somewhere down country, and we sandbagged all those gaps. We sandbagged them. We, I mean, we got sort of kind of gauzy type, well, not gauze, like, like hospital bandage type yeah. stretchy stuff. We filled them with sand. We jammed all the sandbags in. 
and then we sealed all the air pockets and put the um, intube bats, which the fire people need, over it oh, yes. anyway. Yeah. And in some places, I had to put some tight, um, tightened board and things as well. But that is how we dealt with that. Wow. And there wasn't any other way. There wasn't any other way to stop that being a disaster. So when they first turned on the plant and I was sitting there listening, I thought, phew. <laughs> so that was one thing. We also had, we wanted the theatre to be quiet and it had a nice big ceiling cavity. But the design had resilient elements in the ceiling. And I had already been on site and climbed up there and observed the ceilings and that all, all the penetrations had been sealed. It was looking fantastic. I'd signed it off. And then I went down there to look at some other thing. There was a lot of challenges on that project. <laughs> I went down there to look at some other thing and looked up and there were holes like this. Every, felt like every 600 or meter, all over this triple layer ceiling, or triple layer or two layer, no, it's landed, I can't remember. Um, and I said, what's going on? And they said, oh, the seismic bracing's just gone in. So I went up, crawled up into the ceiling space, and I tried with all my might to move the um, metal struts that had been yeah. put in there and couldn't move them with my body weight and thought, ye gods, not only was it not resilient, it was really stiff and rigid. Totally rigid. So a lot of my, well, the massive holes, they had to fill them all again and do that whole work all over again, which was a massive job. Um, And in in some places it wasn't easy to do it, so we had to do a sort of balloon up some wave bar and let it fall back down and there were some places which you just couldn't get access to and we had all these tricky dicky things going on and you know I'd just lost quite a lot of sound insulation performance because it was not only no longer resilient it was more rigid than if it had you know timber framing or Beams at five meter yeah. centers is rigidly braced every one meter on each corner, kind of thing. It was like, whoa! So that was a bit of sweat because it's not like I could add any more jib or do anything. No. So I went back and reassessed it and looked at the calcs and thought, wow, well, it's a big room correction. Read it and scratched my head and thought, you know, I think we might just make the criteria. But I'm going to have to be really careful about, even more careful about those plant rooms and all the other things that mm. were already breaking away. So we did achieve the criteria, but after quite a lot of uh, angst and head scratching, <laughs> and how am I going to deal with this problem? Because I'm only telling you some of them. <laughs> Sounds like a, a challenging project. Well, it was a challenging project, and also there. I mean, we all had the will to try and do it, but it's not like there was any money to do any of this either. So it's not like I could just... um, I mean, there was a fixed pot of money, so that was a concern as well. So they, you know, had to get, you know, labourers in and probably not much money per hour to do this Mm. sandbagging. And then I had to keep coming back and some, some people were doing a really nice job and some people were doing a hack job and... It was just too important to do a hack job. Well, it's probably not the uh, job that most people... It's not like putting that plasterboard or uh, building a brick wall. 
No, it's the first time I've ever had to do that. I hope that it's the last time. (laughs) But anyway, we did it and we made it. And I think everyone feels quite proud of the result. And it wasn't just in acoustics. It was in lots of fields that, Mm. you know, there were additional constraints and things that made it all, you know, not run that smoothly. Yeah. But it got there. And... uh... Changing tack a little. Do you um, do you play an instrument? What, what, what's the no, impact of? No, I'm not a musician. What's the impact of music in your life? Is it is that driven any of these career choices or? No, no. The music. I because I've I never played a musical instrument. I mean, I love music obviously, yeah. but I never played a musical instrument. So, no, it was definitely the architectural background that got me there. Yeah. And, um, yeah, the interest in the building acoustics side of thing. I mean, that's the part that I love, the building yeah. the building acoustics. I mean, I do the sound installation and the resource consent and the mechanical services because then it's all my responsibility. Yeah. And, um, and it's part of it, but obviously it's the building acoustics part and the working with the architects and figuring things out on the spot with them and things. That's the part I really, really like. Do you have any advice for someone starting out in acoustics? Um, I think that... This is going to sound a little bit unfair, but I think that if you come from an architectural perspective and not necessarily a strict engineering perspective, then I think that um, you have just a slightly different um, perspective on things. Like I notice some people have made a decision about something and are going to recommend this to the architects and I think take one look at it and think, well, no architect's going to want that Mm. so I guess I've got a feeling for the architectural intention which helps sometimes and I think that they know that I'm trying to achieve the acoustics within their architectural intention Mm. and so I think that gives me sometimes a better rapport with them Um, then and I'm not rigid if, if they don't like the suggestions, I'll keep thinking or trying to figure out some other way to do it. Mm. So I never say, you must have three layers of noise line jib on a blah, 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 and it must do this. I never do that. Yeah. I mean, I work out and I say, this is what the calcs are saying. Can, yep. we, can we do this? Yep. And they'll say yay or nay. And if they say nay, I find a different way. I, I sort of think often the mindset that we have about our own Work is important, and I think that we if we think of ourselves as designers and part of a design team, and that we're all contributing to make the design better. Yes. Um, that sometimes it's sort of a different way of saying the same thing in one way that sort of describing what we do just maybe in different words. But I really think if we're if our mindset is that we are there to contribute to the design to make it better it stops us from saying um i'll just put this three meter wall at the front of your um side or uh you know 
build this big concrete, you know, bunker because it's it might work acoustically, but I don't. It doesn't think work. It doesn't necessarily make the design better. No, it doesn't work in the whole scheme. And I don't think. Yeah. I don't think it's. Um, I don't think it's fair that uh, we leave the architect to do the design bit, and engineers just throw <laughs> throw their requirements at him to say, "Well, you must do this and you must do that." And sorry, that's what it is. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm surprised sometimes um, with some of the consultants on some of the jobs and diff, you know, um, in different fields who are absolutely rigid about it. it must be done like this mm. because there's they've either done it that way before or yeah. there's they've got a certificate which says that that will work and they have to sign something off but there's a lot of people out there who are not um not really engineers not not thinking outside the square or accommodating the needs of that specific project just saying that it shall be like mm. this yeah and i get quite frustrated with that sometimes <laughs> As a person who bends over backwards to do that, oh, when I find someone who's that rigid, it's like, oh. Not helpful. Not helpful. Um, what do you think the future of acoustics and of the industry looks like? Do you see any um, big changes in what we do or we'll just keep evolving? I mean, obviously technology changes over time. and. Yeah. No, I don't really see that there will be big changes because even though there's all these advances in, you know, augmented reality and virtual reality and all those other things, I think there's always going to be a need for spaces to play acoustic music and for theatres and and they may incorporate a whole pile of extra fancy stuff but still has to be able to do the basic things well. So yeah. I don't really... See it changing that much. And what about the future for you? What do you still want to achieve or do? Um, well, that's an interesting question because I feel like I've I've achieved a lot, and I suppose I keep doing it because I like what I do, not because there's some particular thing that I must achieve before I retire. Or it's not really like that. It's mm. that I actually. In, enjoy that process of figuring out how to make it good with the with the rest with a good design team. I love that process. There are not all projects are like that. Some feel like you're beating your head against a brick wall. A lot do, in fact. I don't enjoy those ones. But when it's working well, I, I get a buzz out of it. That's great. I hope you keep doing it. <laughs> Thanks for your time, Joe. You're welcome. If you want to find out more about Joe's work, you can have a look at some of her projects and papers at marshallday.com. Um, for more about Talking Acoustics, you can head to talkingacoustics.com or email me at talkingacoustics at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.